Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Matt was right on point uh, when he spoke about the dangers of uh, tangential excursions by me on the subject of history. Uh, so uh, you'll be pleased to note that my prepared remarks include very little by way of reference to history, but I would welcome questions during the Q&A session on any matter of Fed history or anything related to that. Um, he was also on point about um, uh, how grateful we are for the help of um, the people who we've come into contact with and help us uh, with the meetings we've had over the course of the last uh, day and a half. Um, this is something that's very valuable to us, um, very important for our understanding of, uh, at a gran pretty granular level, what the process of economic growth looks like, the process of the growth in economic activity and well-being as it unfolds in real time. Uh, we focus uh, a lot on business cycle conditions, on month-to-month, meeting-to-meeting, assessments of economic conditions as we prepare for, as I prepare for the FOMC meeting and my colleagues around the system at the 11 other reserve banks do the same. Um, but uh, interpreting one month's report uh, is just so much more difficult without a baseline understanding of the secular trend. Uh, uh, and types of challenges that are being faced around our country. So I really appreciate it. I see so many faces in the room that I met yesterday or this morning. Very much appreciate your help in helping educate us and keep us uh, well informed about uh, what's going on, uh, in this case, in the Charlotte region. So I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I've, um, uh, going to, I'm going to be talking today about um, the hard work that a lot of people have been doing uh, to prepare the next generation of people to uh, enter our workforce uh, in uh, the United States. I'm going to be reviewing some current facts about labor markets uh, and the implication of those facts for economic mobility and uh, economic inequality. And I then want to share some observations about our current system of workforce uh, development uh, as it exists. In particular, I want to talk about the potential for workforce development programs targeted towards young people uh, and the potential for those programs to have an effect longer run, not only on individual employment outcomes, uh, but on uh, broader issues of economic inequality and mobility. Uh, First, though, I need to note um, that the views I express will be my own, not necessarily those of any of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. So let's start off with some numbers. Um, as I'm sure you're well aware, the U.S. labor market has been weak for some time now, with the national unemployment rate at uh, just above 7% in its most recent reading, uh, more than 4 million people out of work for more than a half a year. Here in North Carolina, the unemployment rate is well above the national average at 8.7%. What is striking, though, uh, is that the view of the labor market differs pretty dramatically depending on uh, the level of a worker's education. Nationally, the unemployment rate for workers with only a high school degree is 7.6%, compared to just 3.7% uh, for workers with a college degree. Following the Great Recession, the unemployment rate for non-college educated workers rose uh, to peak at 11%, uh, more than double the peak that was experienced by uh, workers with at least a bachelor's degree of 5.1%. To put this number in perspective, uh, consider that the highest unemployment rate suffered by uh, college educated Americans in this most recent recession is similar to the lowest unemployment rate experienced by the nation as a whole. 
uh, in uh, its past four decades. In addition to be, <coughs> excuse me, in addition to being relatively insulated uh, from swings in the business cycle, college-educated uh, workers earn significantly more than workers with less education. It's a familiar fact to this audience. The median income for a college-educated worker is $48,000 per year, compared to $27,000 per year for a worker with a high school diploma. To put it more dramatically, over the course of a lifetime, the median worker with a bachelor's degree can expect to earn $2.3 million in 2009 uh, dollars uh, based on 2009 earnings data compared with just $1.3 million uh, earned by the median worker with a high school diploma. And this difference is known as the college premium and it's increased significantly over the last 30 years. Uh, the growth in the premium has slowed a bit in the last few years, but this large gap now seems to be um, an enduring feature of U.S. labor markets. Over the same period, last couple of decades, the United States has also experienced a significant decline in manufacturing employment. Uh, that's the, been the result of globalization and changes in technology that have reduced the need for the demand for unskilled workers. In 1980, more than 20% of Americans were employed in manufacturing, compared to less than 9% today. North Carolina was hit especially hard by this development, uh, particularly the declines in textiles and furniture manufacturing in the United States. Although the state, and the Charlotte region in particular, is now experiencing a resurgence of in, in advanced manufacturing. Unlike the manufacturing jobs of the past, uh, these new jobs require greater skills and significant post-secondary education. Other sectors that have traditionally employed workers without substantial formal education, uh, for example, construction, are also upgrading their skill requirements. We heard recently from a home builder who said that he won't hire a worker who doesn't have good math skills. Uh, it's an example of that phenomenon. Many people uh, are concerned about uh, the effects of this large skill premium uh, for many different reasons. Some see it as an indicator that certain skills are scarce uh, and we need to do something to, to improve the supply of those of workers with those skills. Um, but it's also a nagging reminder of the decline in high paying opportunities for people who are unable to acquire those skills. Uh, something that seems to have declined in the United States. This viewpoint is, is supported by recent data on economic mobility and economic inequality. And these show an increase in inequality in recent years and a decrease in economic mobility uh, between different income classes. The rich essentially are increasingly likely to remain rich and the poor are increasingly likely to over time remain poor. Many factors have contributed to this inequality and its persistence, both its persistence both within a generation and across generations. The disparity in outcome, though, uh, between those who have acquired skills, often in the form of college education, and those who have not, seems likely to play uh, just a dominant role uh, in that inequality. The children of college graduates are much more likely to attend and graduate from college themselves, and this fact seems to have its root in differences uh, that manifest themselves very early in life. 
There's a large and persuasive body of literature now uh, that uh, suggests that the foundation of academic and labor market success is laid down very early in life, even in infancy, perhaps. That's because the early mastery of emotional, social, and, and other non-cognitive uh, skills appears to make it easier to learn more complex skills throughout life. As a result, children who fall behind very early on have difficulty catching up. Uh, gaps in cognitive skills uh, that are present as early as age four t- tend to persist into adulthood. Research also shows, unfortunately, that poor and minority children, those who are less likely to have college-educated parents in particular, are much less likely to have access to high-quality early education programs. So what do all these facts have to do with workforce development? I'll suggest that they should influence our understanding of why certain workforce development programs might or might not succeed and what outcomes we can reasonably expect. They also suggest that the greatest potential might lie in workforce development programs that are targeted towards young people. Two decades ago, workforce development was chiefly concerned with the competitiveness of American workers relative to workers from other countries. More recently, The focus has shifted to addressing earnings inequality in the long run and in the short run assisting workers who've been affected by separations or layoffs. As many of you well know, the most recent piece of federal legislation addressing workforce development is the Workforce Investment Act of 1998. Included in this act was an effort to consolidate numerous different uh, programs at the federal level into one-stop employment centers and to give more control of these programs back to the states and localities by creating workforce investment boards composed of local business education and labor leaders. Currently about one-third of the nation's public spending on workforce development flows through these boards. Boards direct about three-quarters of their funds towards adults, including displaced workers, and one-quarter towards low-income youth who face specific barriers uh, to employment, such as being a parent, being a high school dropout, or uh, being a juvenile offender. In addition to programs funded through the Workforce Investment Act, there are dozens of other workforce development programs administered by multiple federal agencies. These programs primarily provide training to low-skilled adult uh, workers. Relatively little is known about their effectiveness, though. A review by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, found that only five of 47 programs had conducted an impact study to determine whether or not there are measured employment outcomes uh, that could actually be attributed to the the program. The studies that were conducted were generally inconclusive. The positive results were were small and relatively short-term in nature. A number of academic studies also cast doubt on the effectiveness of job training programs, finding that the effects on employment and job retention uh, are modest at best. Evidence is also mixed regarding programs funded through the Workforce uh, Investment Act. Recent research has found that adults who receive general assistance with job certs and placement are likely to become 
and uh, remain employed, are more likely to be, become and re, uh, remain employed. But the same isn't true for uh, displaced workers who have more job-specific training. In fact, several, several studies have found that such workers might actually be less likely to become employed, and perhaps because they stop looking for a job uh, while undergoing training. Now, these, I should be careful here, these results should not be taken as a reflection of the program's quality or the hard work or good intentions of those uh, who are running the programs. Here in North Carolina, we're witnessing some very important changes uh, to the organization and operation of workforce development boards. One of the most significant has been an increase in focus on employer engagement uh, to ensure that local boards are tr providing training for skills that are actually in demand. Local boards also will conduct more worker assessment uh, to help people determine which job and training programs uh, are going to best fit their uh, natural uh, aptitude or inclinations. Here in Charlotte, you know, the local workforce investment board, Charlotte Works it's called, has already put many of these changes in place. But there may be a larger issue underlying the modest results of many traditional workforce development programs, and that is that these programs might simply be reaching people too late. As I've discussed, early skills acquisition is crucial to laying a foundation for later skill acquisition. It's also the case that the earlier an investment in human capital is made, the longer the worker will have to realize the returns on that investment. Many of our current programs may intervene too late for workers to make large investments in their human capital and have adequate time to recoup the investment. Of course, I'm not suggesting older workers cannot or should not uh, learn new skills or that an adult who has dropped out of high school cannot go on to earn a college degree later in life. We, we all know stories where that's occurred and has been very beneficial and worthwhile. But broadly speaking, uh, there may be workforce development strategies that could be more effective at assisting the majority of workers by intervening more early. As I mentioned, about a quarter of Workforce Investment Act funds are directed towards programs that serve young people facing considerable challenges. Traditionally, the goal has been remediation, to help participants achieve basic literacy uh, or minimum credentials such as a, a GED, Generalized Education Degree. As with adult programs, uh, the results of these youth programs have been mixed at best, according to the research literature. But we're now seeing a shift towards providing not just remediation, but knowledge and, like you could say, inspiration uh, about different career opportunities uh, to young people. Local workforce investment boards are touring labs and manufacturing facilities. They're arranging for young people to participate with first responders in disaster preparedness drills and sponsoring robotics competitions. The private sector is also reaching out to young people. For example, by partnering with high schools such as Charlotte's Olympic High School uh, to offer advanced manufacturing internships and apprenticeships. These programs also show young people that there are a variety of paths that they can follow after high school and that's very important I think. Given the rising college premium and the relative insulation from economic shocks provided by a college degree, it's understandable that many policymakers have focused on increasing college enrollment. But when promoting college as a pathway, we have to acknowledge a sobering reality. Currently, only a little more of half 
of the students who matriculate at a four-year college complete a bachelor's degree within six years. Just over half, less than 60%, complete their bachelor's degree within six years. What's worse, there seems to be relatively little benefit, at least in terms of earnings, for students who attend a year or two of college but do not graduate. Median weekly earnings for a worker with some college but no degree are about 15% higher than earnings of a high school graduate, compared to about 80% higher for a worker with a bachelor's degree. Dropping out of college can be expensive as well. As you all know, you've all heard about student debt and rising student debt burdens. The average debt burden among all college dropouts is more than $7,000. And among those dropouts who did borrow, just among the borrowers, it's more than $14,000. So I think, I, I assert, I'm asserting here, uh, that students and families uh, could benefit from better information about the level of preparation required to succeed in college, as well, about, as, as, well as about options uh, they could pursue after high school other than a, enrolling in a traditional four-year uh, college course. Community colleges, for example, are a venue where uh, students can learn more about their interests and their aptitudes. They can practice the skills that are required for success at a four-year school, all the while preserving an option to continue onward towards a four-year degree by transferring, for example, to a, a traditional four-year college. For some students, though, pursuing the bachelor's degree might never be their best path. These students would be well served by learning about other post-secondary educational opportunities that in could improve their labor market outcomes relative to only completing high school or attempting to start but not completing college. Recent research suggests that people vary uh, in their returns they are likely to earn uh, from formal education versus on-the-job training. And some are likely to earn higher net returns from working than from a bachelor's degree. For these workers, for these workers, it's exciting uh, to see a growing number of high schools and community colleges that are partnering with businesses uh, to offer vocational training and, and apprenticeship programs. Programs that equip students with specialized skills, such as those that have been are especially useful in advanced manufacturing. Charlotte has been a national leader in this area. Uh, with the Apprenticeship 2000 program, we saw a couple of students in that program yesterday, a partnership between businesses and the Central Piedmont uh, Community College. I had the pleasure of seeing that in practice at, at Siemens Energy yesterday afternoon. Providing students with more information about such programs could reduce the high school dropout rate. Nationally, about 8% of students do not graduate from high school, and the rate's as high as 40% in some urban school districts. Given that dropping out of high school has been described as an economic death sentence, and you can picture why that's the case, a case can be made that even 8% is unacceptably high for us. Some researchers have suggested that the focus of much many uh, high schools on college preparation is a factor in the dropout rate. Uh, some, if, if you think about it, if the only reason to graduate from high school uh, is to enroll in college, then students who don't want to attend college or view it as an inappropriate choice from them, for themselves may be discouraged from applying themselves and graduating from high school to begin with. For those students, learning about a viable career and educational alternatives 
uh, could be the the thing that improves their appreciation of, for the value of finishing high school. So to sum up, what I've done is note that college graduates earn significantly more than people who've not graduated from college. And they also tend to fare better during economic downturns. Over the same period that the college premium has been growing, manufacturing employment, which used to provide relatively high paying jobs for workers without college degrees, has declined significantly in our country. I've also talked about the possibility that some traditional workforce development programs are reaching workers too late in their lives to um, make uh, large investments in their human capital. But we're now seeing a tremendous amount of energy devoted to programs targeting young people, uh, both in the private sector and uh, at some workforce investment boards. These programs have the potential to significantly improve educational and job prospects for students who might otherwise have dropped out of college or enrolled but failed enrolled in but failed to complete a college education. But I should emphasize uh, here on a broader note that we're not concerned with high school and college completion rates simply because of the implications for the production of goods and services, simply because we want more workers in our world. Our concern instead, I believe, stems from what the numbers indicate about the well-being of the people underlying those statistics and their ability to achieve a secure economic future for themselves and perhaps more importantly for their children. Uh, and this is where uh, we, we tie back into the economic mobility issues I talked about earlier. When we look at, at, at economic disparities across um, our society, it's clear that differences in human capital accumulation play a, a, a very significant role. And human capital acquisition uh, begins very early in life. Doing our utmost to help the next generation of workers make the best use of their talents and opportunities will lay the groundwork for their children to achieve their full potential as well, and for the United States uh, to achieve a more inclusive prosperity, which I think we all uh, believe in. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate you, uh, the help you've given us, uh, and I thank you uh, for coming today. I do have some time for questions. They don't have to be about history. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, Dr. Lager, thank you for lunch, by the way. Uh, You're welcome. Let me ask you a question about confidence. Um, Mike alert. Chris. Mike oh. is coming. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're Chris. I know you're I know you have a sense of humor. I wasn't sure of that. Uh, Chris William. Um, yes. Anyway, um, if, <laughs> just forgot it. Oh, it's back. Uh, question of confidence. We, we, we just came through October and we saw what happened with the congressional debate about budgets and about closing down the government. We saw in, in the summer of 2011 uh, a similar uh, uh, folly, if you will. I, I, you know, I'm wondering, Jeffrey, what is, and we've seen the Fed um, over the last couple of years become more assertive about which way they were going and, and even tipping their hand a little bit. So we've seen a more aggressive Fed. I'm, I'm wondering if the Federal Reserve could, uh, uh, what could the Federal Reserve do to to use the bully pulpit to uh, maybe be a foil to the lack of confidence and the erosion of confidence in those who make public policy, and especially when it comes to these these sacred things that we you know the full faith and credit of the United States. So, 
There you go. That's a great question. Uh, yeah, I've gotten that a couple of times in the last couple of days. Um, so the what we've been through in, in Washington, you referred to it as a folly. Uh, you know, uh, uh, not sure I shouldn't be a little circumspect about using that term, but uh, my views are close to that. I think of in two pieces. One is you know the direct economic effects of the loss of income, uh, and and that is a, a relatively minor in the grand scheme of things, and a trans effect, so the amount of income lost uh, to government workers, a lot of them are going to be paid uh, retroactively. Uh, some contractors lost income and the like, and some businesses suffered some loss of business, but that'll be made up in the first quarter, and by the second quarter, we'll be back, the economy will be back to where it w otherwise would have been. The broader effect of what we've been through in October, I think, is a, a no yet another incident contributing to uh, what I see as an erosion of confidence in the competence of our governing institution to solve the problems we're, we're faced with. Um, that sol Those solutions often require compromise and our ability, uh, the inability of those institutions to bring about, mediate uh, that kind of compromise is disconcerting to say the least uh, to economists uh, like us at the Federal Reserve System and um, speaking for myself at least and uh, I think for observers around the globe and it should be a broad concern to us. I think that um, I and my colleagues, I, do, I have not been shy and do not feel constrained um, in our ability to say publicly uh, that um, it would be very valuable to the economy, to the well-being of our country to solve some of these political um, problems, these dilemmas to make compromises, to put our fiscal path on a, a sustainable, uh, in a sustainable direction um, would be very valuable and we, we don't feel shy about saying that and I've done that publicly um, but as I was saying earlier today I, I think people have grown used to, accustomed to the Fed uh, lecturing um, the rest of the the, the country on the, the value of um, figuring out our fiscal problems. I likened it to, you know, it's kind of a dog bites man story, not a man bites dog story. So it, it, it tends to get buried, tends to get not much coverage. But I think it's important and I think it's vital. Um, because if you look across the world, uh, one of the, I, I think the, the consensus among economists is that one of the chief um, factors discriminating uh, differentiating between countries that have had very successful growth experiences like we in Western Europe and Japan have had over the last two centuries and those who haven't, who've lagged behind and only recently have grown, only recently have, have joined the global economy and started growing. Uh, one of the chief differentiating factors is the effectiveness of governing institutions um, at fostering a climate that's conducive to people achieving their potential. Uh, in ways that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, I'm a strong uh, advocate of, of uh, us getting our house in order uh, at the federal level. And uh, you know, I don't have any deep answers uh, as to how we can bring that about, uh, but I do intend to use my good offices to uh, advocate for that going forward. You asked about the Fed though, didn't you? <laughs> so uh, I didn't notice that I ha I've evaded that question so far. Uh, monetary policy is only limited, very limited in our capacity for offsetting uh, the effects of what I've been talking about. Um, our effects on labor markets, real economic activity um, are, are, are modest 
tend to be transitory. Our best contribution to growth is to economic growth is to keep inflation low and stable. Uh, sometimes that requires low interest rates, sometimes high interest rates, um, but that's the best thing we can do to keep uh, employment uh, growing at its potential, uh, at its potential maximum. Um, it's definitely the case that fiscal policy makes our job harder, at times makes it easier. This is a time where it's making it harder. Um, and um, there are challenges ahead um, for the relationship between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Long answer. Uh, hope, hopefully not too tangential. In the back there. Dr. Locker, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Uh, Bobby Chesney with PNC Bank. And like my friend Chris Williams, I want to talk about or get you to talk about confidence. But as it relates to the studies you did um, regarding childhood development and then as well the workforce, my curiosity is more on the workforce, uh, the displaced workforce as it relates to a lot of economic, a lot of training, a lot of uh, education. But what about the psychological, where psychology and emotion and confidence uh, enters the mindset of the displaced worker as it relates to the studies you've done? It's a good question. Um, so uh, the research I was referring to um, focuses um, virtually exclusive on, exclusively on the economic aspects of, of um, the effect on, on those folks, uh, their income, their, their job prospects, what happens to them economically going forward. Uh, economists, you know, by our nature, are focused on, on that. And when we, we think about consumer confidence, I think of it first and foremost in people's assessment of the likelihood that they're uh, they're going to keep their job, the likelihood that their real income is going to advance, the likelihood that they may lose their job. If they lose their job, the likelihood of them finding a job rapidly uh, soon after that. Um, so that, I, I think that kind of, at that level, at that, that sort of base level, I think that's, my sense is that that's a dominant consideration when you're looking at things like um, how, f how rapidly is consumer spending growing? And that's been a factor in the recovery from this recession. Uh, consumer spending's grown at about 2%, whereas historically 3% or more was more the norm. Uh, and I, I think that reflects the scale and, and breadth of the downturn uh, in the labor market that we saw in 2008 and early 2000 and through 2009. Um, the psychological aspects... Um, I, I think they tend to flow from those sort of economic fundamentals about, you know, households, job prospects, and I, you know, I, it's it's very much, uh, um, I think it's very much the case that that weakening those prospects, that the the anxiety of, of um, you know, of, of, of a, a family member, one spouse losing their job. Uh, not being sure about when they're going to find a new job, um, prospects of losing your home in foreclosure, um, you know, losing retirement income, wealth, your wealth, retirement wealth, in a pretty dramatic way in a in a stock market decline, for example, the magnitude we saw. Those things can be incredibly stressful um, for people. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I tend to trace, I, I tend to tie them back to, to what's tangible, that what we can think about and measure in economic terms. But I, I know less about um, j just the psychological impact of, of the kind of um, displacements you're talking about. Yes, Rush? <clears throat> Here comes. Through Smorton from Global Endowment here in Charlotte. Uh, speaking directly to the, the talk you gave, um, you've done a lot of analysis and thinking on 
uh, how what characteristics um, have led to successful um, uh, young people going into the labor force and keeping their jobs and so on. You know, college degrees earn more than almost twice as much as high school and so on. What thinking have you done about if we got all that right, what jobs are there going to be for them to go to? Because the natural rate of economic growth has slowed basically for decades. Um, we've got older people. The, the one for, part of the labor force that's actually growing is the 55 and older crowd, right? They're just not giving up their jobs. It, we have the rise of the machines, as some people say, and, and it's even happening in China. It's not just here. With uh, you know the decline in manufacturing that's gone on for years and years, it, those people that built the great middle class after the war, what are they going to do? They can't all be entrepreneurs. They can't all be hamburger flippers. What are you actually training them to go to? It's a great question. So there's a, ra a range of jobs that um, propel our economy forward. Um, I, uh, we've, I've been impressed over the last several years. Um, and we, we've treated these reports skeptically and probed and pressed, but they keep coming back at just how widespread uh, we've seen the reports of companies that can't find workers. And they tell us they would do more. They would produce more. They would build more uh, if they could find people with the skills uh, that they're looking for. So there does seem to be some impediment in our labor markets. Uh, you know, a, a relatively high unemployment rate at 7.2% uh, by historical standards accompanied by these widespread reports of firms that are having difficulty finding people with the right skills. Uh, it's a bit of a puzzle. Um, and uh, that's what's led us to, to look hard at efforts that are being undertaken, like um, the workforce work that we've been talking about today, uh, to improve skills, to match up, to, to invest, to make the investment in human capital to build those skills. So we see it in manufacturing. Um, we see it in some con some areas of construction. Uh, we see it in classic old line trades. These this, these reports of scarcity, uh, you know, maritime maintenance, uh, pipe fitters, um, plumbers. Um, so you you hear it all over the place, um, but it tends it tends not to be college educated workers that people are looking for. Now the other the exception to that is IT workers. That you see you hear read about scarce and hear about scarcity there. There there's. Uh, there seems to be more of a flexibility on the wage side so that you get you get rising wages for IT specialties that are in high demand and scarce and that induces a shift of people into those areas other IT people go get that skill uh, you know whether it's a particular kind of coding or, or particular type type of niche um, or whatever um, so Yes, you're right. We can't all be hamburger flippers, but we can't all be IT workers, and we can't all be uh, financial analysts. And we, you know, we can't all. We we need more than just the the things that college educated people do. And it's finding that balance, I think, that's the key to the economic inequality that I talked about. That's telling. That's sending us a signal that there's some scarcity we need to address, and um, and 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 that scarcity in those those sort of middle skills areas, one where. I think we need more work and could do better and be better organized as a society. And that's, that's kind of what my talk today was about. <clears throat> this one coming. Yeah. One more. Sure, I want to give you a uh, scenario and see if you uh, can give me a uh, definitive answer to this scenario that would maybe make some personal sense for you. Let's say you're sitting around having Christmas dinner. You've got um, 
let's call it four children. They're all in high school. You just got laid off by the Federal Reserve. You got two girls, two boys. The oldest girl wants to go into medicine. The uh, next one, young man, uh, let's say he's in 11th grade, he doesn't like, uh, doesn't like the idea of going to college at all. He loves athletics. That's all he cares about. The next one is a female. Let's say she's in the 10th grade. All she wants to do is go in the military. That's all she cares about. She just wants, she's in love with the guy that's in the military and that's what she wants to do. The one, the next one in the ninth grade, uh, he doesn't have any idea, but he's absolutely brilliant. He's thinking about government service. Now, how would you, how would you guide these four through that, through that Christmas dinner? I knew this was going to be a loaded question. <laughs> I sensed that. Harry, right, how much wise we had. So I, I, I'm going to hesitate. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say what I would tell each one of them to do. You know, what I'd say that as a parent, what, you know, what you ought to do, or what I would do as a parent, is uh, make sure they knew what all the options are. And try and think of options that might be, might be interesting to them. And expose them to that. And expose them in a series. Not just sit around the table and tell them, oh yeah, you could be this, that, or the other thing. But, uh, you know, take them somewhere so they can see it. You know, meet, introduce them to someone that does it. You know, so you know the daughter wants to go in the military. Find someone. Find a woman who's been in the military. You know, gotten out after ten years stint. It's it's this information, uh, providing them with a sense of what the options are out there. Because my sense is that too many too many high school kids just don't know what all the options are. And that's that's kind of my message today. Is that you know let them know what the options are. So the the one that doesn't want to go to college, you know, and is really into sports. Now, you know, are there careers in sports that look plausible, you know? Is he six foot five and two eighty? One. <laughs> Second thing, you know, if he's not, you know, he's sort of normal size like the rest of us, you know. Sports, you know, I don't know, some sports medicines or some other program, some something that maybe doesn't involve college but gets them into the industry. So think about matching them up with information, stuff that they can they can act on and it's vivid for them. Because that'll imply that'll that'll give them both a tangible sense of whether it's a good match for them, whether they could visualize themselves doing it, but more importantly, the motivation, you know, the inspiration, because their success is going to depend on their, their ability to focus and work at something for a little while to get where they want to go. And you're going to have to learn some stuff to get where you want to go in this society. And that work, the learning's going to take a little work. So, you know, that's kind of how I'd be thinking about it. So. Yes. Is this a history question? Uh, no. <coughs> uh, no, no tricks here, I think. Okay. Uh, Jeff, hi. Uh, Ronan, hi, Ronan. Uh, Ronan Advisors, good to yep, see you met again. yesterday. Yeah, good to see you. Um, I have two questions, one on the topic you discussed today and one macro, so we'll get to that one a little bit. Uh, on education, my question is, um, I think one of the traditional uh, uh, benefits of a college education that people understand is this broad-based training that prepares you for whatever may come. And I think you cited some statistics uh, or some studies how uh, there are more persistent job benefits from broad-based training versus very job skill-specific training. On the other hand, 
we've seen a lot of talk about apprenticeship programs and seen the benefits that they can provide. But in some sense, that seems to run counter to that intuition that an apprenticeship program, which by its nature is for a specific job or a specific mm-hmm. employer, is that the right choice for a high school student versus some more broad-based training? That's so a I'd good question. Yeah, that's a good question. So I, the, you're, what you're talking about is a bit of a trade-off, uh, potentially. You could imagine a trade-off between broad-based skills that are useful in a wider variety of circumstances and help... Uh, somebody adapt to changing circumstances. Industry X uh, goes down the drain. They need to transfer to some other industry, learn some new skills or some new job. Um, and I, you know, I tell young people I meet who ask me for advice to g- get used to the idea you're going to have to learn a lot of new things uh, over the course of your working life. Um, and learning a, a very narrow skill, very, you know, especially really well, might pigeonhole you and keep you limit your options later on. So I don't know the terms of that trade-off because, um, you know, what's key is the ability to learn again and learn more again. And I. Um, you know, a, a trade, you know, likely the technology is going to change in 10 years. You're going to get a new vintage machinery. You're going to have to go to some training courses later on. And, you know, could it be that just the act of learning that narrow trade uh, gives you enough experience at learning that it improves your ability to learn later? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, and it also has, to, the terms of the trade-off often have to do with Something that has to do with the, the rate of obsolescence of, of technical knowledge and technical skills. Um, and I, I, it's a, a worthwhile question to pose. Um, but um, uh, so it's a, quite a matter of what to learn in some sense. Um, well, so I think you also added the, the skill to continue learning as right, it progresses is maybe the most mm-hmm. essential thing that you yeah. need to pick up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do we have time for my macro question? Or should sure. We, we could do a macro question. Um, well, uh, so if we look back over the last several years, we have uh, unemployment, which has been at a level probably persistently higher than what we might consider full employment. At the same time, inflation has been probably persistently lower than what we might consider a tolerable level of inflation. Um, so naively, one might think that it calls for a more accommodative or easing stance on the part of the Fed. Um, using whatever tools are at your disposal, mm-hmm. um, whether it's quantitative or helicopter drops or whatever. So, what's the what's the danger behind you know going down that road? Is there a fear that you know, if, if inflation kicks up, you wouldn't be able to counteract it? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to understand. Uh, that's a good question. So, yeah, it is the case that economic growth has disappointed. Uh, to run at two percent uh, over the last four year or five years since the recession, uh, whereas over the the second half of the last century, it averaged three and a half percent, and that include that period included recessions as well. So, just in an expansion, we're only doing two percent. Productivity growth is is low; it's one percent, used to average one and three quarters. Employment growth is one percent, used to be higher in, in previous expansions. Um, the unemployment rate has fallen; it's come down by about seven tenths of a percentage point per year, uh, but that's still a disappointing uh, rate um, by historical standards. Um, so. In that instance, yeah, um, you'd, you'd expect low interest rates. You'd expect highly accommodative policy, and that's we, we've done that. We've lowered interest rates to zero. They hit zero in late 2008, and since then we've uh, expanded our balance sheet in an attempt to provide further stimulus. Now, our ability to provide stimulus through b- at balance sheet expansion is um, is uncertain. We're not quite clear that we understand the effects. We're not. Not quite clear. We have 
we know that they're strong or not. Uh, we're, and we're doing this, you know, under the supposition that, well, you know, if, if it helps, it's good. Um, but we're not, we're not doing it out of a strong sense of conviction uh, that um, the, 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 the effects on real economic activity are large. Um, now, you've asked about the risks. So we, we've built up a balance sheet that's, that's approaching, it's going to approach $4 trillion at some point soon, perhaps. It's, it's over $3 trillion now. Um, that means about one, a little over a trillion dollars in paper currency, and the rest of it over two trillion rising in bank reserves, uh, reserves on banks' balance sheet, and excess reserves, reserves that they don't need, they aren't required to hold. So any one bank can try and lend them out. You know, they can't do it all as a whole, all at once. But any one bank can try and lend them, lend them out, and. Um, the, the typical time during, you know, before this recession, excess reserves were typically two billion dollars. So we've gone from two billion excess reserves to two trillion excess reserves. Right now, inflation's um, tame. It's uh, run one and a half percent or so for the last year or so. It's averaged two percent over the last twenty years plus. It's swung up to four, down to negative one. It's fluctuated, so it's not clear we're not still fluctuating around two percent. And inflation expectations seem to be steady. But the risk we run, the larger our balance sheet is, is that we've got Tinder on the books of the balance of the banking system that would make the consequences of a mistake on our part potentially larger. Um, and the type of mistake would be that we're, we move too late, we tighten too slowly. And if that happens, um, loan opportunities emerge in a situation where growth is picking up. Um, we could see banks lend out try and lend out all those excess reserves fairly rapidly. Rapid loan growth could lead to rapid deposit growth. Rapid deposit growth, that's, that's the money supply that matters. That could put inflationary pressures into the economy. Uh, and and we, could, we could break away and lose some credibility and see inflation expectations rise. That's a, just a scenario. That's just a risk. I'm not saying it's large or small, but that's a risk. And that risk needs to be weighed against the potential benefits of further balance sheet expansion. And I haven't mentioned the other risk people talk about, which is distortions to current financial asset prices. And that's a little bit harder to, to get a handle on um, and a, a little bit harder to pin down. So it's not one that, that I emphasize. But that's, that's the kind of risk that I think um, those who are concerned about the quantitative easing that we've done um, uh, have in mind. So I got I got in a macro question. I haven't gotten a, a history question in years. So, uh, oh, here's could we could we just do one more? Because I think he might ask a history question. He actually knows some history. It, you can you can ask a question if it's a history question. All right, great. And then and then we got to go. Kind of a quick history questions. So over the last hundred years, every time there's a financial crisis, the Federal Reserve gets more to do. You get bigger. You get more regulations to cover. Mm -hmm. Um, and that certainly happened in the last one. Is the Federal Reserve getting too big, too important, too all-inclusive in our economy? That's a good question. Um, so the, it is true. We, we were given more responsibilities um, in uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, although it, it clipped our wings in a couple of respects as well, and trimmed our ability to engage in, in these special lending programs and transferred some lending authority to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. I am broadly concerned that... Um, that the, 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 
the implied expansion of our mission, uh, of our mission that's occurred since the crisis is, uh, is too much and too ambiguous. When people talk about financial stability, um, I don't, I'm not sure we have a, a firm sense of the optimal amount of financial stability, if you will. Uh, we don't want to stamp out all financial distress in this economy. We want firms that fail to fail and we want the creditors of firms to fail to experience the consequences of that because otherwise incentives are distorted, too much risk is taken, and the economy breaks down. Um, so uh, there has to be some measure of instability. Maybe it's not a lot, maybe it's a little, maybe it's a medium-sized amount. There ought to be some instability in financial markets uh, just to, to keep things healthy. Um, and so I don't think, I, I think, you know, I think people talking about our financial stability mandate, I'm not sure we have a firm grounding, a firm grasp on just what financial instability we want to prevent and what we want to what, uh, not allow. And my fear is that after the fact, any financial instability is just going to be blamed on us and, and we're going to be told we should have prevented it. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the right answer for us. So that's a broad concern. Good question. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate your attention, your cooperation, your help. And I hope you can be well. See you again soon.